to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, without having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils, and verily that they are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he, he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may also... And, and as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed... There is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance to the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judea, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest." who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a dis disannualing of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but in the beginning, or in the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make increased intercession for him, for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those priests to offer up a s sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the, for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is concentrated forevermore. You may be seated. I'm going to ask if you would,
join me in a word of prayer uh, as we pray this morning. I thought it appropriate uh, that we, for those who can and are able, uh, we're just going to bow and take a knee. We're just going to bow before the Lord this morning. So if you can and are able, um, I'll have you join me and we're going to pray this morning uh, to the Lord. Father, we bow before you, not out of show or pretense, but to acknowledge that you are God and we're not. To humbly submit ourselves to you. We bow, Lord, recognizing our great need for your intervention in our lives as individuals, in our lives, in our marriages. Lord, we recognize our great need for you in our homes, in our communities where we live, in this state of Indiana, and among the nation, and even around the world. Father, we bow before you this morning as a means of worshiping you. For you alone are worthy to be praised and worshiped. Father, this morning through your word, mold us, shape us, mark us as your own. That we might be your people that we might live like your people, that we might proclaim the praises of the one whom we worship and hold to. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word of truth. Speak to us this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Truett Cathy, founder of what we know today as Chick-fil-A. Anybody visited Chick-fil-A? The beginning stages, working at the courthouse grill alongside his brother back in 1946. We're more than, for today, started in 46 to today, we're more than 1,500 Chick-fil-A restaurants are now operating nationwide. From opening day's business, which brought in a whopping $57 on that first day of business. Back then, that was probably a pretty good pay. To what is now bringing in over $5 billion annually through all of their stores. Play has continued to grow since that first standalone restaurant was opened back in 1967. More stores, more income, but the same quality food and the same quality people. Its company is really built on those two standards, excellent food, excellent customer service. Since coming up with the recipe for his famous Chick-fil-A sandwich in the 60s, Truett Cathy has been about serving people. He hires the right kind of people. And these people work oftentimes in their hometown communities. 
He invests his time, he invests his energies and his dollars back into the people who are operating his stores. His store operators share a common denominator. You know, they all seem to share high levels of character and integrity. It's a novel idea in the world we live in today. Truett Cathy started the Windshape Foundation, which has provided hope and stability for young people. He's authored books. He, he loves to go and speak about Chick-fil-A. It's people who, who make the business run well. He's provided thousands of dollars in scholarship money to his workers to continue their education. He's known for giving away loads of free food. Anybody like free food? Yeah, he's known for that. Their stores are typically very clean, welcoming, and their people seem to always be on the lookout for ministering opportunities. See, Truett Cathy has made a mark. He's made a mark, but not for himself. His life has been about service, going the extra mile, taking care of the customer's needs, communicating with excellence and my pleasure. Right? You've heard that when you go into a Chick-fil-A? A smile. He's helped to create an atmosphere of service by means of selling a tasty chicken sandwich. What mark are you going to leave behind? If you were to define your life right now, what's the greatest contribution that you've given to those around you? Your spouse, your children, your workplace, the country where you live? If you think a little bit larger for just a moment, what might God have to say about your mark left behind? What does he think about your life up to this point? And what difference has your life made for the cause of Christ? You know, as I think about this example of Truett Cathy, it causes me to think about my own life and the mark that I'm leaving here in this world. Not being guaranteed another day. I'm awakened. The urgency of living with a measure of intentionality and forsaking the rituals taking the old sinful patterns and the whole hum of life that surrounds us in this wicked and perverse generation. As I look to this word, I see from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the mark of Jesus. In the Old Testament, he's the one that's being pointed to. All that comes before is type and shadow, and a hint of the reality and substance which is yet to come in Christ. His mark is punctuated in God's revelation to man, given to us in what we know as the Scriptures. 66 books inspired by God Himself, written by holy men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing. And collectively, this book is the lasting mark of our Lord Jesus. And yet this lasting mark, the name of Jesus Christ. We sing about the name of Jesus. Jesus, your name. This name of Jesus Christ is largely maligned today, isn't it? It is. His name has been removed from many public sectors. 
An increasing number of hostilities today revolve around the name of Jesus. People seem to be okay when you mention God, but you mention the name of Jesus all of a sudden. We've got some problems, it seems. The contrast is highlighted well by Paul, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. The name of Jesus is divisive. We live in a country founded upon the principles of God's word. The original mark left by our founding fathers was saturated with biblical principles and values. And yet in the course of some nine generations now, our country has been doing a fine job, it seems, of erasing anything having to do with that original mark. We've had a fair number of ungodly leaders who have listened to ungodly people and have passed ungodly legislature, resulting in unheard of ungodliness sweeping across this country. The mark that once was is hard to recognize these days, isn't it? And as a result, it appears, it appears that we are in the midst of reaping what we've been sowing as a nation. It appears that way. And while the picture of the nation is marred drastically by sin, I'm encouraged as I turn to God's word in Hebrews 7. The mysterious Melchizedek, he reappears in Hebrews 7. He's on the scene again, not once, not twice, but six times in Hebrews 7 alone. Add to that three more references in Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10, and Hebrews 6.20. And the book of Hebrews mentions the name of Melchizedek nine times. This Melchizedek appears only here in the New Testament, book of Hebrews. His first arrival comes on the scene back in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Approximately 2000 BC, somewhere in that realm where Abraham is. He's mentioned a second time about a thousand years later in one of David's Psalms, Psalm 110 verse 4. And then he's not mentioned again until 1st century A.D. in the book of Hebrews. So Genesis represents the first encounter with Melchizedek. The lesson of history, what he did, who he was. It sets the scene for his purpose in the pages of Scripture. And the Psalms speak a prophetic word about this Melchizedek. God swears in Psalm 110 verse 4, declaring that his son, who had not yet come, his son is a priest forever according, here it is, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 then picks up on this prophecy declaring that the Messiah is Jesus. The same Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament who would rule and reign. This Jesus has been designated by God himself as high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the point of mentioning Melchizedek, what's the point? How does he pop on the scene in Genesis 14, disappear for about a thousand years, and show up again in David's psalm? How then does he disappear once again, only to show up this time about a thousand years later again in the New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapters 5, 6, and 7? 
What is the mark left by Melchizedek? I'd like to teach you from the scriptures this morning what Hebrews 7 has to say about that question. I want you to see that Melchizedek's mark points people to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. I want you to see that Melchizedek's mark isn't a quest to draw attention to himself, but to the one who would come after him. The one who would draw all men unto himself through the reconciliatory instrument of the cross. That's how he was going to draw them unto himself. Melchizedek's mark is characterized by blessing and hope and power. Melchizedek's mark is grounded in the person who is deemed the way and the truth and the life. The significance of Melchizedek's mark isn't the mark that he leaves himself, but what it points to and represents. A look at Melchizedek leads one to Jesus, friends. The mark left behind and described in the scriptures, the mark that we have here, is one that punctuates the life of Jesus. And let me ask you a question. Is there a greater mark to leave behind than that of pointing others to Jesus? What a great mark. When you die, what a joy to know that the mere remembrance of your name speaks of Jesus. Melchizedek's mark is making Jesus known. I want you to remember that. Melchizedek's mark is making Jesus known. That's his mark. How then does Hebrews 7 unpack Melchizedek's mark? I'm going to give you three things from the text. I didn't make these up. They're from the text. The first thing I want you to see is that there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. And we see this in verses 1 through 10 of the text. There's a better way to live. You know, I was thinking, uh, not far from here, in fact, but from time to time, I drive down 67. And I drive down 67. And when you drive down 67, you, you, you can't help but notice the prisons, the jails, the reformatory. Big, huge facilities. I'm assuming housing lots of inmates. And you know what? The thought just occurred to me as I'm studying this week. So many people locked up. There's a better way to live. I think about those people and I think there's a better way to live. And I think the writer here in the text is, is pointing to a superior, better person in Melchizedek. Better than whom? Better than those serving as high priests in the order of Aaron. That's where he begins. And in verses 1 through 3, he's identifying this Melchizedek. Follow with me in, in the text. This Melchizedek, king of Salem. He's a king. He's a priest of God Most High. He's a king and a priest. Well, the priests, in, in, in the old, old covenant, the priests weren't the kings. But this Melchizedek is a king and a priest. Hopefully, hopefully you're seeing already how this Melchizedek is marking, making a mark toward Jesus. Because the Jesus that we serve is both a king and a priest, isn't he? So right out of the gate tells us something about who this Melchizedek is. In the context, if you would turn with me to Genesis for just a moment, because... It's, it's not, very, not very much material, this, this first entrance of Melchizedek. But Lot has been captured, the, the, the town of Sodom, there's been a battle. Four kings going to war against five kings. 
and Lot and his family are taken captive. Abraham hears about it. And Abraham suits up his 318 trained men and they go in during nighttime, a nighttime mission and they rescue Lot and his family and all the goods and they're bringing them back. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Again, boy, it's hard to, hard to miss this. We don't know that there's no detail on this, why he brought bread and wine. I'm sure there were some, perhaps some cultural things or reasons involved with that, but I think of bread and wine, I think of the Lord's Supper. Again, pointing to this Jesus. And he was the priest of God Most High. And look what he does. He blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that's Abraham, gave him, that's Melchizedek, a tithe of all. That's the brief encounter, the first encounter of Melchizedek. He blesses Abraham and he's the recipient of the tenth part or the top part of the spoils. Notice his name means king of righteousness. If you go back to Hebrews 7, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, short for Jerusalem, Salem, Salome. Peace. He's king of peace. So we have connected to Melchizedek righteousness and peace. Does that have anything to do with this one Jesus that you know of? You see how he's pointing? I mean, these clues in the text help us see that Melchizedek, his purpose in being here, his purpose in coming forward in the scriptures here in Hebrews is to help us understand. It's like this discovery. It's like finding something that is a treasure. Here's a man who, he doesn't have a whole lot of space in the scriptures, but what space he does have, he's pointing forward to Jesus. He's making his mark known. He's without genealogy. Verse 3, without father, mother, genealogy. Now, hey, listen, if you're a Jewish listener and you're, and you're hearing about this Melchizedek who is without genealogy, red flag! Red flag because the Jewish folks were big on genealogies, weren't they? Huh? They were big on genealogies. If you weren't connected to someone, in fact, if you were a priest and you weren't in the line, if, if they couldn't track that you were a part of the family line, you weren't going to be priest. But this Melchizedek seems to not have one. At least it doesn't seem to be available. But I think more so... I think it's put forward here to help us understand that genealogy and, and your connection to certain people doesn't have anything to do with it. I think we're going to see this more as it keeps going in the text. So genealogy, red flag would come up to the listener. And then it says, made like the son of God. In what way? Remains a priest continually. That, that phrase is going to be really big. Remains a priest continually. Because isn't it true that Jesus himself is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He is our priest, and, and God declares him to be so. You are a priest, how long? Forever. In this order of Melchizedek. Well, in the order of Melchizedek, even Melchizedek is deemed a priest continually. Now, Melchizedek, didn't. He, he's still not living. He's still not alive. And we'll talk a little bit further about what some may think about Melchizedek. There's some other things thoughts about Melchizedek, but for now, 
It's important for us to understand that the text, the writer is identifying who this Melchizedek is. He's going to show us there's a better way. That's one of the themes here, right? Anchored to someone better. We look through the book of Hebrews. We're anchored to someone better. And there is a better way to live. And the writer is trying to help his Jewish audience in particular understand, hey, you've been holding on to something. I want to let you know there's a better way to live here. So how is it that Melchizedek is deemed better than Abraham? Remember, Abraham is the great-grandfather of Levi. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Levi. Okay, Levi came through Leah, Jacob and Leah. Well, the patriarch Abraham, it says in the text, verse 4, consider, now consider how great this man was, Melchizedek, that is, to whom... Even the patriarch Abraham, he defines who this Abraham, he he makes sure his listener is not getting confused with some other Abraham. This is the patriarch Abraham. This is the one whom a lot of you are holding on to and grasping on to as your hope. Even the patriarch Abraham gave tithes to this man, Melchizedek. And, and, And some might be thinking, well, what's the big deal that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham? And the Jewish listener might have said, well, the sons of Abraham received tithes as well. Well, the sons of Levi received tithes from their own people. If you read Numbers 18, you'll read all about that. Okay? Numbers 18 describes that. It's in the law. And that the people of God were to give tithes to those servants. Okay? Well, the sons of Levi received tithes from their own people as part of the law. They were commanded to do so. Melchizedek is from another order of priests. He is not of the line of Levi. And so what we see are two very important things brought forward here early in chapter 7 is that Abraham gives a tenth part or a top part, gives the best of the spoils to Melchizedek. Tithing. Melchizedek blesses Abraham as one who had been given the promises. Blessing. You have tithing and you have blessing. You see Melchizedek giving a blessing. It's interesting to me that Melchizedek is blessing him in this way. There's something that Melchizedek knows that maybe... We aren't privy to in Genesis 14. He recognizes that the promises of God are upon Abraham. And they are. Because if you just push rewind to Genesis 12, you see God has indeed already blessed Abraham, hasn't he? Without a doubt, or without contradiction, verse 7 says, without a doubt, the lesser is blessed. The lesser is Abraham, right? Is blessed by the better. There's that word, better. Who's the better? Melchizedek's the better. And then it goes on, it says, here mortal men receive tithes. So mortal has in mind dying. Dying men receive tithes here. Melchizedek is a type of one who lives on. Remember, his priesthood continues pointing ultimately to whom? Christ. Hughes in his commentary said in the ancient world that paying tithes to another was recognition of the other's superiority and a sign of subjection to that person. A sign of superiority. So this makes this all come together a little bit more. What, it, what this meant, giving tithes to one, actually meant something. It meant that this person was a superior to you. Abraham is giving a tithe to this Melchizedek. Listen to what the writer now does with this. In verses 9 and 10, 
even Levi who receives tithes. How did Levi receive tithes? According to the law. People were commanded to give Levi tithes to take care of the work of the tabernacle. Okay? Even Levi who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham. How would Levi pay tithes to, to Abraham? Through Abraham. How would he do that? Well, because he's far removed. Remember, he's four generations away. How does Levi pay tithes? So to speak. Did you get that? It says that in the text. So to speak. Even he pays, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You see, this is a principle in the scripture that we see in Jewish thought that generations behind were also included in decision making. Sort of like what we find in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, there's this man named Adam. We're far removed from the man Adam, aren't we? But you know that in Adam, what's the Bible say? All men what? Sin. We, we weren't there with Adam, but there, there's this collective understanding and idea that he was our representative. Here we see that the writer is, is kind of using that same idea, motif, if you will, that Levi, while he received tithes, Levi was also the one paying through Abraham these tithes to Melchizedek. What's that all about? What's that mean? Why? What's so important? Again, the idea of paying tithes is paying to one who is deemed the superior. Paying tithes, declaring that one is, is better in some regard, at some level. There's a better way to live. Now, the writer is addressing those in the church who are still wavering, still contemplating, holding on to the Levitical priesthood concept. Keep that in mind. That's context. Beginning with Aaron and continuing with his sons, the priesthood is represented in three ways. This is important to get. The priesthood is represented as temporal. We got in the text mortal men, men that are dying. But we also have an age-based idea because in the Bible it tells us that the priests could only serve from age 25 to 50. Once you were done at age 50, you could no longer serve as high priest. There was a specific temporal period that you could serve. So not only did you have a period that you could serve, but you also were going to die one day because you're mortal. Temporal. The Levitical priesthood was also law-driven. The people gave tithes to the Levites because they were commanded to do so. And we see that this Levitical priesthood is inferior. We see that through Abraham, the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek, to someone deemed better. So the writer is showing that there is a better way He's saying, you've been holding on to Abraham and the Levitical priesthood, but the order of Melchizedek is the better way. And it's better not solely because of Melchizedek, but because of the one that he points to. It's Jesus, who is declared a priest forever by God according to the order of Melchizedek. To understand that the writer is not aiming at Melchizedek as one to follow. The point of the, the passage is not follow Melchizedek. But it's showing that the order of Melchizedek is a better way than the order of Aaron in the Levitical line. As we'll see in the next several verses, the Levitical priesthood points to law keeping, which is futile. And the Melchizedek priesthood points to a better hope through which we draw near to God. And that's wonderful news. You know, in terms of application here, thinking application of this particular part of the text, there's a lot of people today, are there not, following the wrong examples? A lot of people following wrong examples today. Many are holding tightly to the things that they can see. 
And they've completely forsaken the things that they can't see. Faith has been abandoned for selfish pleasure. Lovers of pleasure and lovers of self are fitting descriptors of these last days. And what a sad reality that so many are clinging to a lesser way of living, an inferior way of living. Many are choosing the temporary over the eternal and living it up while it's still today. Little recognition of godliness, little interest in sober and righteous living in this present age. We are lovers of this world and people, by and large, who have hearts and minds about, yea, thick. There's not a whole lot there. Nor do we really seem to have much desire to exercise those minds and hearts for the Lord. We're consumers of the world's goods and we've become adept at choking on God's word. The recipient of the book of Hebrews has a choice to make. Continue on with Abraham and Levi and the Old Testament priesthood for my way of living. Or cut ties completely with that old way and walk confidently in the order of Melchizedek, which leads to new life in Christ. That's the choice. And I realize that the Levitical priesthood may not have a hold on you today. I realize that as I'm preaching the word. It may not have a hold on you today. It may not. However, I would imagine that someone else or something else might have a hold on you. And I would want to tell you this morning, in terms of the text, in terms of applying the text, there's a better way for you to live. And I was reminded of the scriptures. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Proverb writer says in 23, verse 19, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. And what comes next here in the text in Hebrews 7 develops that way and the need to continue in that way. So there's a better way to live. But here's the second part of the passage. There's a better hope awaiting. A better hope, verses 11 through 19. There's a better hope. The text in verse 11 begins with a conditional question. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priesthood should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now, perfection here, we oftentimes think of perfection as mature, Someone who's mature or sometimes perfect actually means what it means as it's applied to Jesus. He's called us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And we know that our Heavenly Father is truly perfect. Here in the text, the word has another nuance, another idea that I think is very helpful for us to understand. Perfection here means to put someone in the position in which he can come or stand before God. To put one in the position in which he can come or stand before God. The idea that's behind the word is this whole concept of access. Access. You know, the other day, 
I haven't even told my family this one. The other day I was leaving the store, and I was walking out. I don't know if, if this is you or not, but, you know, if you've got one of those little fobs and it has lock and unlock on it, and sometimes you walk out and you don't remember where you park, right? You can hit this, and it'll sound, and you can go where it's, your car is. Well, I hit it, and I, I heard the sound, and I went up, and I had something I was going to put in the trunk, and I'm hitting the trunk key. I'm hitting the trunk key. I'm standing five feet from the car. Hit the trunk key. Hit the trunk key. It's not popping. I'm like, what's going on? Hit it again. Hit it again. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. Wrong car. This car looked a lot like my car. But you know what? The key didn't work on that other car. It looked a lot like my car, but it didn't work. You only get access from your key to your car. Access is granted. Access is given through a key, a specific key, to your specific vehicle. Access is given to God one way. You can't use a whole bunch of keys to get to God. There's one key that's going to get you to God. Anybody guess what that key is? Jesus. That's not my opinion. The Bible tells us that. No, in fact, it tells us in two different ways. I, I love this. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent him draws him. So there's a drawing work of the Father to the Son. And then in John 14, the end of verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get to God. You don't get access to God without Jesus. Do you know there's a lot of people today that don't get that? They don't understand that concept. They think there are a lot of different ways that you can get to God. Folks, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you get access to God through Jesus Christ alone. That's how you gain access. Note that for a time, the Levitical priesthood, through one man, one time a year, had access behind the veil of the Holy of Holies, right? Access to God in the Levitical priesthood was severely limited. That's what the writer is pointing to here. Another priest was needed, and that priest would come from a different order than Aaron. So with a change in the priesthood, listen, this is important. With a change in the priesthood, there also needed to be a change of the law. Be very clear here. Not a change in the law in that we need to have new rules. There's a lot of people that would love to twist that verse right there. See what I mean? Change in law. The Bible even says we need a change of the law. Look what we're bringing in, all these changes. No, it's not what it's saying. Because there was a change in the priesthood, that this priest was no longer coming from the line of Levi. There was also of necessity needed a change of the law. Why? Because the law said that the priest had to come from Levi. So the law needs to change if the priest is changing. Does this make sense? This is what the writer's talking about. The new priest comes from the tribe of Judah. That's what the Bible says here in 7, 13, and 14. It says, he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. 
from which no man has officiated at the altar. No priest before this time had officiated the altar from Judah. And yet if you read your Bible in Genesis 49, you see the blessing of Jacob, and he's blessing all of his sons. And the blessing there from Judah is that his scepter, his scepter, the lion of Judah, is going to reign, he's going to rule. It's a blessing. He's given the blessing, and he's talking about what's going to be. For it's evident, Hebrews says, that our Lord arose from Judah. His audience would have known that. It's, it's evident. Of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And so the writer unveils something now that is far more evident. Notice that's what he goes to in the next verse, verse 15. And it is yet far more evident. What he just spoke was evident. Now it's far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another, that word another, it's another of a different kind, not another like Melchizedek, but another of a different kind, another priest. There is only one Jesus. Melchizedek is not Jesus. But his mark is made known by pointing to Jesus, isn't it? Not come according to the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. In other words, it makes sense if this new priest comes according to the order of Melchizedek, whose genealogy makes no difference. doesn't matter if you can't find his birth certificate, what line he's attached to. In contrast to the law, this priest comes in power. And in contrast to the fleshly commandment, which man in his weakness could not keep, This priest exhibits an endless life, or some translation, I love the word, indestructible. An endless or indestructible life. Think about it. Did this priest, talking about Christ, did he die? Yes. Did he stay dead? No. It's endless in that regard. It's indestructible. Death couldn't keep him in the grave. O'Brien says in his commentary that Christ becoming a different priest is based not on law, but on God's power, the power of an indestructible life. It's descriptive of Christ as son and high priest in his ascended and eternal state. And as if more proof was needed, the scripture again adds in verse 17, for he, that's God, for he testifies, we're going back to Psalm 110 verse 4 again, it just keeps putting that down, he keeps putting it down, for you are a priest forever. His father is declaring of the son. The son hasn't come yet. And yet he's declaring, he's promising, he's prophesying. You are a priest forever, not according to the line of Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And then verses 18 and 19, they shed additional light on the contrast of this Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood, which shines light on Christ itself. Look at the text. Look at verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, we have one of these arguments. On the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand is an annulling. Another word for annulling is setting aside. Okay? Annulling. There's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Not because it was wicked. Not because it was bad. We've got to remember, God is the one who established the law. God's the one who put the law in place. It's holy. It's good. But it was only intended, as we'll see, for, for a time. And here in 18, 
on the one hand, there is an annulling or setting aside of the former commandment. Why? Because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. Going back to verse 11, there's that word perfect. It's used in the same way right here in 19. The law made nothing perfect. Listen, the law doesn't take a person and allow them and put them in position to stand and have access before God. The law doesn't do that. So what's the law do? We'll see that this better hope that awaits, this better hope gives us access to God. The former commandment offered little hope of gaining access to God. It rendered us guilty. But through the forerunner, we've already read about at the end of 6, the forerunner who has entered ahead of us through Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest who has passed through the heavens, we no longer need fear a guilty sentence. He paid the necessary payment for our sins once for all, bringing in a better hope. Listen, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. We just read about that last week. And it's a hope through which we draw near to God. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Ephesians 2, 18 says, For through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access By what means? By one spirit to the Father. I want you to think back with me to the temple curtain. Turn to Matthew chapter 27 for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 27, I'd like to start reading at verse 50. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So what just happened here in verse 50? Jesus died. He gave himself, he yielded his spirit. He laid down his life. Verse 50 describes his death. Notice what comes in verse 51. Then behold, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and people started rising up out of the graves, and all this stuff started happening. But the first thing that's mentioned is the veil of the temple is torn in two from top the bottom. You know, we oftentimes recite the meaning for Jesus coming down here to earth from Matthew 121. He came to save his people from their sins. And that's correct. He did come for that reason. But his death secured something else for us that we really need to understand here. His death granted to us access to God 24-7. His death put us in a place, put us in a position where we now have access to God. Remember the limitations of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus, the Bible says in Galatians 4, was born under the law. Remember that? Which means that he came into this world while the Levitical traditions were still in operation. His death and his subsequent tearing of the the, the temple 
curtain that was torn after his death, behold, the tearing of the veil, opened the way for access to God. His death ushered in a better hope through which we can now draw near to God. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, it brought additional meaning to the hymn writer's lyrics. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. You see, drawing near to the cross, receiving Christ's death as your own, opens access to God. It's through his death on the cross, his shed blood, that access to God is granted. And so limited access to God turned into unlimited access on the other side of the cross. Isn't that good news? Where there used to be limited access, the cross, not only is it the pivotal point on the timeline of history, but it's also the pivotal point where we gain access. God allowed us and he placed us in a position to gain access to him. Melchizedek's mark is making Jesus known. And you know, as we think about applying this section of scripture, the setting aside of the former commandment, you know, there's some folks today that are still holding on to traditions and feasts and new moons and Sabbaths and sacrificial system. And these things are he defines it. They're, they're weak and unprofitable. The law puts no one in a right relationship with God. The law was never intended to position someone with direct access to God. So the question comes, what purpose then did the law serve? Did the law have a purpose? Absolutely the law had a purpose. And the Bible even asks that question. What purpose then does the law serve? Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. And he gives an answer. It was added because of transgressions. For how long? Till the seed, capital S. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Who's the seed? Well, Galatians 3.16 answers the question again. The seed is defined as Christ. You see, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says. So beware then. In fact, it says this so much in Colossians chapter 2. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the traditions of men. According to the basic principles of the world. And not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. The substance is Christ. That's Colossians chapter 2. There's no one else who grants access to God but Jesus. There's no philosophy out there. There's no religion out there that can deliver access to God for you. The better hope of the text, O'Brien says, accomplishes a direct and lasting access to God. A direct and lasting access to God. So we have a better way to live. We have a better hope awaiting. 
through Jesus, our great high priest. The remaining verses in this chapter tell us that there's a better covenant guaranteed. There's a better covenant guaranteed. We have a better way to live. We have a better hope awaiting us. And there's a better covenant guaranteed. That's 20 through 28. These these final three verses really point to the greatness of the one in the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus. Three things that characterize his superior priesthood are found in these verses. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them, but I want to mention them to you. The first thing that's mentioned here is God's oath. He's, he's, he's got a superior priesthood, Christ that is, because of God's oath. Look at verses 20 through 22. Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, there's, double ne- there's not and without. Essentially what he's saying here is that for the priests of the day who were in the line of Aaron, they served as priests not because of any oath God made, but because this was the way the law worked. And he's pointing out that the difference in Melchizedek's line, which lands at Christ, Christ is high priest. He's deemed high priest because of the oath God delivered. And that oath is found in Psalm 110 verse 4. God declared even before the sun came on the scene, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the oath, it's the oath of God spoke it. God declared Jesus to be priest forever. Therefore, he's superior. Verses 23 through 25, we see a permanent or unchanging priesthood. How is it that Christ is superior? He has a permanent priesthood, a permanent one. It says, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Right? Death got in the way. They couldn't continue forever. They were mortal. They were going to die. But they were also, once they reached 50, if they lived that long, they were done. So, so their priesthood didn't continue. That's one of the points he's talking about. It's not permanent. But he, verse 24, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable, or the word there has in mind, permanent He has an unchangeable or permanent priesthood. What difference does that make? Verse 25 tells us, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always, key word, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. We sing the song, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today, it's true. He lives as our faithful, merciful high priest to intercede, to be the go-between, between God and man. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 that he is our advocate before the Father in heaven, isn't he? So that when and if we do sin, that we have an advocate with the Father in heaven who's going to God and saying, He's my son. She's my daughter. He's covered by my blood. He's interceding on behalf of his people. We see in verses 26 through 28 that he's a fitting high priest. He's a fitting or becoming high priest. So he's superior because of God's oath. He's superior because there's this permanent priesthood in place. And he's superior because truly he's a fitting high priest. Fitting in what way? Fitting because he's holy. Fitting because he's harmless. He's without deceit. He's without harm. He, He has no intentions of harming 
What else does it say? He's undefiled. You know, and this is an interesting word in itself to describe him. But did you know that one of the qualifications, and this speaks to the limitations of the Levitical priesthood, very little, if any, is even said about heart qualifications to serve as a priest in the in Levitical priesthood. What you see most of, if not in its entirety, is the exterior. Because you see, these high priests who served had to be without blemish. Now, it reminded me in some ways of, of, of our political system today in that we look for candidates by and large. We look for people who have, have a look for TV. They got to look good. Well, back in the day, there were all kinds. There was a whole list of things that would disqualify you from being a high priest if you didn't look the part, if the exterior wasn't right. But, you know, this other high priest comes along in the order of Melchizedek, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the exterior. (laughs) It has everything to do with the interior. And so I find it interesting that he uses the word undefiled here to describe Christ. He truly is undefiled. He's separate from sinners, not separate in the sense that he didn't want anything to do with sinners because he came down here to earth to deal with sinners but separate from them in that he was in his 33 years, give or take, of life. He went through all the temptations and trials that we go through and yet was without sin, the Bible says. Separate from sinners. Amazing to think about that. He's become higher than the heavens, right? This high priest who's passed through the heavens, he's offered himself once for all. Once for all. He doesn't need... It says in 27, it's talking about the high priest, how he's fitting for us. He doesn't need daily to go and offer sacrifices. There's no need for that because this great high priest that we serve in the order of Melchizedek has taken care of it by one sacrifice and that in of himself and that through the cross, through his shed blood at the cross. Friends, that's the gospel message. That's how we're saved. Saved by grace, through faith, in the finished, completed work of Christ at the cross. In what way, then, is Jesus a fitting high priest for us? I love what West says in his commentary. He says, he's a fitting kind of priest for lost sinners. You see yourself as a lost sinner? He's a fitting kind of priest for that kind of person. If you're one who's already got it all figured out, remember, remember Jesus says himself in the Gospels, he came not for those who thought they were well. He came for the sick. We have a fitting high priest. I'd like to point you to, to a couple things as we conclude. In the Old Testament, you know Moses associated with being the lawgiver, and you know Aaron associated with the, uh, the one who was... Uh, the high priest, the one who was offering the sacrifices from the Levitical line. And Numbers chapter 20 points to Aaron's death. It's important that I want to bring this forward again, drawing a line and a contrast between the Levitical priesthood and this priesthood of which Christ is a part. And to show why this one is superior and so much better than this one. And to show us that then, if we understand this, then it, it should... It should be a catalyst for living in this way and no longer clinging to this old way. 
But you see, Aaron went up on the mountain, and he went up there with the son, and Aaron died, didn't he? You remember what happened before he died? He, he exchanged clothes. His, his priestly clothes and garments were given to his son. Aaron died. We see a little bit later in the book of Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 34, you remember who else died at the end of Deuteronomy? Moses died. Remember God, in his mercy, he allowed him to go up to the mountain. He allowed him to see that promised land. But he died. And it's interesting to think about those two and to think about their deaths. Because really the deaths of Aaron and Moses, as one writer says, that these are two things about the old covenant that are symbolized. There's a symbol here. It was not permanent. It could not bring people into the promised land. It was temporary, could not save. And neither the law, represented by Moses, nor the sacrifices, represented by Aaron, could deliver from the wilderness of sin and bring the people into the land of salvation. Aaron and Moses didn't get to enter in. It's symbolic of of this whole uh, frailty, if you will, of the Levitical priesthood. You remember the ephod that was worn by the high priest? The ephod was attached to that breastplate of judgment. And what was on the ephod, there were two stones. And engraved on the two stones, uh, one stone was six names of the tribes. And then the other stone had the other six names of the 12 tribes. So you had 12 tribes. And in Exodus 28, verse 12 says that you shall put, it's given instructions on how this is going to work. You shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders. And a few verses later, it says, talking about the breastplate and how they're combined the ephod and the breastplate by means of its rings. It says, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Listen, the Levitical priesthood is temporary and inferior to the priesthood according to Melchizedek, a priesthood that represents continuity, a priesthood that represents perfection, a priesthood that represents power in the person of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, there is a better way to live. Through Jesus, there's a better hope awaiting. Access unlimited is now available. And through Jesus, there's a better covenant guaranteed. And there's more on this later in Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to talk about the better covenant. It's called a new covenant in Hebrews 8. So we see Melchizedek's name mentioned once as means of introduction in Genesis 14. His name is mentioned a second time as a means of prophecy attached with a promise by God in reference to the one who's yet to come. His son, Jesus Christ, who was going to be ruling and reigning as Messiah. And the remaining references to Melchizedek occur here in the book of Hebrews. The order of Melchizedek points to the way of Jesus. Melchizedek's mark is making Jesus known. His mark is making Jesus known, a priest and a king, righteousness and peace surround him. He's the giver of a blessing. He's the recipient of tithes. He's made like the Son of God in what manner? He remains a priest continually. There's lots of debate over this man, Melchizedek. Was he a real man? Was, was this appearance, the appearance of the pre-incarnate uh, Lord himself? All kinds of stuff out there on who this Melchizedek is. Mystery surrounds him in many ways. And yet some things are clear. There are some things that are clear. What what he represents, I believe, is clear. 
What he left behind is clear. He left an indelible mark in the pages of Scripture. And yet he's only found in Genesis, in the Psalms, and in Hebrews. Melchizedek's mark points to the central theme of the Scriptures. Jesus. That's what he points to. Melchizedek plays a support role that Jesus might be highlighted. John 3, verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. You remember who said that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He too left a mark behind, didn't he? He came to prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight. Not his own. Not to build up his bank account. Not to build up his portfolio. He came to make Jesus great. You know, each one here, and each one who's not here, each one of us leaves a mark behind. What mark are you going to leave behind when you're gone? Will your life be remembered for what you like to do? I can't tell you how painful and sad and tragic it is when you go to a funeral. The funeral still sticks in my head. It's long ago, but it still sticks in my head. Walking into a funeral and and knowing that this person who has died, they didn't know the Lord. And the thing that stands out, the thing that's highlighted, are are pictures of the fact that he he loved to fish and he loved football. That's not going to matter. not is it going to be remembered for what you like to do your list of accomplishments your hobbies your philanthropy contributions will your mark left behind highlight things in this world will it point directly to something that you built something that you invested in something that you treasured in this lifetime listen Melchizedek's mark was making Jesus known Any takers for making Jesus known today? I hope we'd all say yes. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your mark will be also. Let's pray. Lord, there are many things we may not fully understand about this person, Melchizedek. Father, I confess there are many things, uh, questions that, that remain that we just don't have answers to in your word. But Lord, there are some very clear things that you've told us about this Melchizedek. And I believe that, that the point of him being in the scriptures, in large part, is to make known who Jesus is, to make known His priesthood, to make known His kingship, to make known that His way is a superior, better way. And Father, while we are not here today attached to a Levitical priesthood per se, I do believe 
that we are attached to many other things in this world. Many other things have a hold of us. And we seem to be doing a fine job holding on to some of these sinful, old habits and patterns. And I believe, Lord, that you would call us through this word to see with clarity through Melchizedek is being pointed this one we know as Jesus. He's better. He's superior. He's the only way that we'll ever have access to you, God. So, Lord, I pray that as we acknowledge these things as truth, that that would go hand in hand with our behavior. It's not enough for us to hear a message and to agree with the content and to walk out the door and continue living however we want to live. We thank you for granting us access through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we do have a better way to live. We thank you that we have a better hope awaiting us. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful truth that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that as we leave today, we too would be encouraged to think and consider much about the mark that we're going to be leaving. We're all going to leave a mark. The question is, is that mark going to be pointing toward Jesus or not? May it be so for those here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.